0: When the Sandinistas came to power in Nicaragua 10 years ago, filled with ideals and hopes for their nation and their people, they discovered a very awful thing. And it wasn't about themselves, even though they had to do it to themselves. It was about that capitalist encirclement. They discovered that they needed a secret police. They discovered that they needed a security police. Because all around them coming in from two borders and within their own society were acts of sabotage espionage, attack, mercenary invasion and the like. And they understood that if the revolution was going to survive, it would have to build up instruments of state power, instruments of coercion even. And these instruments, by the way, can make mistakes. And these instruments can not only make mistakes, they can commit some serious crimes. Although in Nicaragua, the impressive record is how few crimes there were given the utterly dire conditions they were under. If there'd been no invasion, if there'd been no espionage, if there'd been no attack, if there'd been no white guard armies burning villages, there wouldn't have been a red army of that size. There wouldn't have been a Stalin, there wouldn't have been a KGB. If there hadn't been a CIA, there wouldn't have been a KGB. If there hadn't been a, a NATO encirclement, there wouldn't have been a Warsaw Pact. And to lose sight of that fact is to lose sight of an essential force of what was going on over those 70 years. And if you want to know what the Soviet Union went through in its early years, just look at what Nicaragua went through in these 10 years and then multiply that by 10.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for visiting with us this evening. I've traveled across half our state to be here and to see about this land. I dare say some of you might have heard some of the more extravagant rumors about what my plans are. I just thought you'd like to hear it from me. This is the face. There's no great mystery. I'm an oil man. Ladies and gentlemen, I have numerous concerns spread across this state. I have many wells flowing at many thousand barrels per day. I like to think of myself as an oil man. As an oil man, I hope that you'll forgive just good old-fashioned plain speaking. Now, this work that we do is very much a family enterprise. I work side by side with my wonderful son, H.W. I think one or two of you might have met him already. I encourage my men to bring their families as well. Of course, it makes for an ever-so-much more rewarding life for them. Family means children. Children means education. So wherever we set up camp, Education is a necessity, and we're just so happy to take care of that. So let's build a wonderful school in Little Boston. These children are the future that we strive for, and so they should have the very best of things. Now, something else, uh, and please don't be insulted if I speak about this bread. Let's talk about bread. Now, to my mind, uh, it's an abomination to consider that any man, woman, or child in this magnificent country of ours should have to look upon a loaf of bread as a luxury. We're going to dig water wells here. Water wells means irrigation. Irrigation means cultivation. We're going to raise crops here wherever before it just simply wasn't possible. You're going to have more grain than you know what to do with. Bread will be coming right out of your ears, ma'am. New roads, agriculture, employment, education. These are just a few of the things that we can offer you. And I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that if we do find oil here, and I think there's a very good chance that we will, this community of yours will not only survive, it will flourish. I'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have. Yes. Will the new road lead to the church? Well, that'll be the first place that it leads. Thank you, Eli. Anyone else? Well, if anything comes up, I'm pretty easy to find. just come visit with me. Thank you so much for your time dream about this place.
2: to part eight of the octopus. So Danny Casolaro believed the octopus was a tangible organization. He thought that it was eight key guys who'd been secretly orchestrating history since the end of World War II. Now, as we've discussed previously, who these eight guys were changed depending on what was most expedient to Danny's narrative, you know? So in his telling, The octopus syndicate rose from the seafloor, as he put it, at pivotal moments in post-war history to decisively tilt events in their favor. And he believed they were rogue intelligence operatives working in partnership with organized crime who came together during Operation Valuable, which was the secret CIA invasion of Albania in 1949. And through gun running and drug trafficking, they acquired influence over key guys in banking and politics around the world, and they laundered tens of millions in illegal revenue to finance off-the-books operations in the name of anti-communism and to get paid as well. Now I'm sure it's pretty obvious by now that we don't necessarily endorse the specifics of Castellaro's theory, particularly the A-key guys bit, because, you know, attributing the major events of the last 80 years to just eight people doesn't really align with the facts. And it kind of dramatically oversimplifies an incredibly complex and chaotic historical tapestry. Now, this isn't meant to be a slight against Danny. Uh, Ben Ghazi and I have talked at length about how he was a typical mid-20th century American and his political ideology such as it was. It perfectly reflected that. So it's no surprise that in following the threads extending out from the promise theft, he started to believe that he'd discovered a unifying th- field theory of post war American conspiracy. And to be honest, I sympathize with anyone who spends time thinking through the Inslaw affair and connected scandals and comes to believe the same thing, which is that there really is a secret mafia type kambal of a dozen or so players orchestrating world events because you immediately notice the same names appearing again and again when you start the reading you know and these names they're connected to the promised theft yeah but they're also connected to bcci to iran contra and then back beyond that to watergate to jfk to gladio Many of them are connected to more contemporary events as well, you know, like 9-11, the war on terror, the financial crisis even, and, you know, architects of, of what Edward Snowden would reveal a few years back. And, of course, it's not like everything Danny had to say is completely wrong. You know, in the broad outlines of his argument, he'd be mad to think that the spooks don't work with gangsters, you know, and the entire point of this show, in fact, is to explore this overlap between business and politics and crime and intelligence. So much of what Danny uncovered, yeah, it in general, it stands up to scrutiny. Uh, the wealthy, they do subvert and corrupt politics to serve their own agenda. Intelligence agencies really do try to circumvent accountability every chance they get, and they've committed some horrifying crimes in the process. But the problem is that in much of Danny's work, he reads this corruption and subversion as the work of an external group of sinister actors, you know, and he wouldn't or he couldn't understand that capital is itself the sinister actor. And in a system where, you know, corruption isn't just endemic, but integral to how everything functions, it will always select for the most amoral sociopaths who thrive in that kind of environment. And in so doing, conflict between them is inevitable. So we're going to approach this episode, as we approach all of them really, when we think about American um, deep history, we're gonna approach it from the Carl Oglesby side of the fence, uh, bearing in mind his point, that rather than essentially orchestrated conspiracy that shapes history, what we have instead are a multitude of warring factions in the ruling class that conspire with and against each other. Uh conspiracies contending in the night, I think is how you put it. And I think it's pretty obvious that we here at Ghost Stories, we believe that the corruption and the subversion is inherent to the system we live in. You know, it's part of the design. Danny seems to have realized this uh, too late. And in its own way, it does appear to have been shattering for him. So what does any of this have to do with the enterprise? Well, quite a lot actually, because we described in Casino how the rise of Poppy Bush to the top of the CIA in the, the late 1970s, that represented a sort of Unifying moment for the US uh, power elite, you know, after the chaos of the 60s and the 70s. And in the story of him as vice president in the 80s, we find a brilliant illustration of what we've just been talking about regarding warring factions and, you know, contending conspiracies. It's extremely ironic that with the great unifier of the US power elite occupying the vice president's office, the US spook underworld would, I mean, arguably spiral into even more darkness and chaos than it had during the American years of lead. You know, lots of people got rich for sure, but lots of people died too. And fresh revelations of criminal conspiracies and violent expansion of the imperial frontiers, they became an almost daily occurrence during the Reagan Decade, And in following the threads, you know, connecting major players, it's nearly impossible to find anyone who wasn't at least two steps removed from some war crime or drug or arms deal or something like that, you know. And when we look at the decisions Poppy made back then and the wider underworld that he was plugged into, we can also start to fully appreciate how the maddening ambiguity and the fever dream logic that suffuses the octopus narrative, you know, as well as the the wilder theories that were dreamed up to explain much of what happened in the 80s and 90s. All of that is actually an essential part of the story. They all serve a very specific function, which is to mystify all of these events and so confusion, really. I mean, think about how You know, the Patriot movement, 3% is this sort of right-wing paranoid firmament that started to really develop in the 1980s and then up through the 90s as well. You know, a lot of the stuff that they were peddling had, at points, a basis in truth. You know, some of that stuff we're going to touch on tonight. But it's fascinating to think how many of the various groups, leaders and figureheads, had actually passed through institutions that were, you know, a part of the U.S. national security state. So we have to start thinking now about this sort of right-wing paranoia that starts to develop and snowball, especially after the res- revelations of, you know, Iran-Contra and um, events like that. And why do certain takes on these these events? Why do they become gospel in particular circles? So what we're going to demonstrate tonight, now that we've mentioned Iran-Contra, is that that really was just one part of a much larger story. And in many ways, it was transformed into a kind of a limited hangout to cover up that larger story. The enterprise, you know, at least officially, was just the name for Oliver North's covert funding operation for the Contras. But I'm going to argue that it encompassed much much more than that. It developed in response to the political situation at the time. So we have to understand what was happening in that US security state apparatus in the 80s and this increasing overlap between public institutions and private interests. And most of all, I'm hoping that we'll see how the policies and decisions that were enacted by Bush and his key guys planted the seeds for some key deep structural events in the decades that followed and one of the questions i think is worth considering at the outset here is if the enterprise was in fact the octopus or at least the closest real world approximation of danny's theory you know there are lots of candidates for it but The Enterprise, although Danny never really identified the network as such, it's notable that almost all the key players were connected in some way to, you know, the October Surprise meetings, Watergate, the Phoenix program, Castle Bank and Trust, that's a biggie, uh, Dallas, the Bay of Pigs, and so on. And I think the question is even more intriguing when we consider that, you know, Iran-Contra, which is the event most closely associated with this thing that is called the Enterprise. That was actually part of an interlinked series of crimes and conspiracies that pointed towards much larger systemic corruption inside the US government, you know, which is something that's deliberately ignored in in most mainstream accounts. So we don't need to buy Casolaro's notion of a centrally controlled criminal syndicate acting as the puppet master of history to accept that Reagan's administration was violently crooked and paranoid and obsessed with secrecy and compartmentalization. And in reading about this period, we can sense the presence of something very similar to Danny's octopus group, albeit it's more diffuse and it's harder to define, but it was secretly making moves and influencing policy in the shadows. And almost everywhere you look, you can detect the indirect influence of... George H.W. Bush. So we'll start by considering this indirect influence, which means we first need to loop back to 1979. Here Bush was in campaign mode and his backers at the CIA were convinced that he was going to be the next president, you know. Bush for Prez posters covered the walls at Langley and you'll remember from our casino series that one reporter described the crowds at his rallies as being full of guys wearing raincoats. And we went long on how his primary run fell apart and the negotiations that led to him, you know, becoming Reagan's running mate. I think that was during part five of that series. So check that out for more information if you haven't already. But in July of 1979, Bush was still feeling confident and he was optimistic, you know. And by this point, this is two years on from his spell as CIA director. He joined the Trilateral Commission. Uh, he'd taken a job as chairman of First International Bank in Houston. His power, his influence, was as you know, rock solid as ever. And on July second, he took a break from campaigning to fly to Israel for the Jonathan Institute's conference on international terrorism. So between the second and fifth July, nineteen seventy nine. The great and good of the Israeli establishment and a who's who of the most fanatical and hardline anti-communist Israeli, British and American spooks, you know, politicians and military figures as well. They all gathered at the Jerusalem Hilton to network and share their analysis of the, this changing face of terrorism and so forth. Bibi Netanyahu's dad actually opened the gathering and Bibi himself was one of the Jonathan Institute's founders. And there were also Tory politicians from Britain there, uh, right-wing historians as well, like Sir Hugh Frazier and Paul Johnson. They spoke on the first day. Uh, Brian Crozier also delivered a speech called Soviet Support for International Terrorism. This was a key speech at the gathering. This was always going to find a sympathetic audience at that conference and his analysis such as it was Was shared by most of the people who go on to join the Reagan administration, which is that they all believed, or claimed to believe, let's say, that the Soviet Union was secretly funding every single terror network that was opposed to the West. Uh, Attendees were given a pamphlet that was written by Claire Sterling called International Terrorism, The Soviet Connection. And she wrote a book um, expanding on this theory which landed her very lucrative speaking gigs for years to come. Now, Crozier, just in case you're not aware, we've mentioned him before, but not for some time now because we've been covering America for so long. He was a highly influential uh, British historian and journalist and basically a propagandist for the, the UK establishment, you know. He served as a liaison as well between MI6 and the CIA. And he was one of the architects of the Shield Group, which was a Le Cercli detachment that was set up to feed Margaret Thatcher intelligence on her political rivals and domestic subversives in Britain uh, to give her the edge in the 1979 election. It was also obsessed with just monitoring subversion, you know, in general, which usually meant trade unionists, you know, activists, that kind of thing. Always an enemy of theirs. So this conference is crucial to understand so much of what has informed Western foreign policy for most of the last 40 years. Counterterrorism had become the hip new thing in Western foreign policy circles during the 70s. Lisa Stantnitsky, describes in um, Discipline in Terror how this counterterrorism industry sprung up and developed. Quote, In late 1972, the RAND Corporation, soon to become one of the core locations for the development of terrorism expertise in the United States, was asked by the CCCT, the Department of State, and the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency to do research on terrorism. With these initiatives from the government, together with independent interest arising from academics and various others, however, the production of terrorism expertise expanded exponentially. Within the space of a few years, terrorism was transformed from a problem with almost nothing written on it, to a topic around which entire institutes, journals, and conferences were organized. One early bibliographic study of the field identifies 1973 as the year when the systematic study of international terrorism began to develop, noting that virtually nothing was published on the subject prior to 1960, and only a handful of publications appeared before the middle of the 1970s, while 113 books appeared on the topic in 1976 and 161 in 1977. So, you know, to put it crudely, it's almost as if somebody knew that the Soviet Union wasn't actually as all-powerful and immortal as it had been hyped up to be. And serious work was going into finding a new enemy that could justify ever-expanding defense and security budgets just in case it all fell apart, you know. And in this pivot towards terrorism, the powers that be were also creating a new cottage industry of terrorism experts who could offer intellectual justifications for pretty much any foreign policy position the US government and its satellite regimes wanted to adopt. And if these experts were well-connected enough, of course, they could make a very good living telling politicians and spooks exactly what they wanted to hear. You yeah. know, And the whole purpose of Poppy Bush's Team B experiment, which we've also discussed, you know, when you boil it right down to its essentials, it was to artificially inflate the threat posed by the USSR to ensure a continued flow of funding for the, the military industrial complex. And they'd already been flirting with the concept of a global terrorist threat that they claimed the Soviets were funding and supervising. By 1979, Poppy had apparently accepted that terrorism was going to be the wave of the future. And in fact, he'd brought a couple of Team B buddies with him to Jerusalem. There was Richard Pipes, he was the Harvard professor. Ray Klein, he'd been chief CIA analyst during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, former U.S. Air Force intelligence chief George Keegan, they all traveled to Israel with Poppy. And Bush himself was the star of the show at this conference. You know, he was the the former head of the CIA and potentially the next president as well. So it's impossible to read extracts from his speech without feeling a chill at how eerily it anticipates the war on terror narrative that his son would sell to the world 20 odd years later. Quote, I must urge drastic surgery as the only reasonable cause. And by that, I mean determined action, firmness under the duress of blackmail and swift and effective retribution. The problem for the open society is how to have, build up and preserve this essential tool of defense, which in the long run is indispensable for the protection of ordinary people and not so outrage the liberal conscience that the legitimate exercise of state power is frustrated. And here we see, we see an, a little bit of the nifty magic trick the US security state and its, its propagandists were going to perform time and again in the decades ahead. So the terrorist threat is portrayed as amorphous and all pervasive, you know, but it's very vaguely defined, it's both external and internal at the same time. So, this means you are justified in clamping down on civil liberties, um, expansion of the surveillance state, and an increasing militarization of the police at home. But the terrorists have to be under the control of some kind of globe spanning network or state actor to explain ballooning military budgets and alliances with right-wing dictatorships and, um, you know, contracting and outsourcing with corporations and interventionist foreign policy. In 1979, that puppet master was the Soviet Union. So any country that could be argued to be allied to or under the influence of the USSR, that was considered fair game. The Soviet Union would eventually collapse, you know. It was actually already entering that terminal phase. And anti-communism would start to look a little bit outmoded and old hat. But luckily, by the time the Berlin Wall fell, the foreign policy blob had already spent the better part of 20 years creating and trying to define a new, all-powerful enemy to take the place of communism. As Philip Paul wrote, quote, the entire notion of international terrorism as promoted by the Jerusalem conference rests on a faulty, dishonest and ultimately corrupt information base. The issue of international terrorism has little to do with fact or with any objective legal definition of international terrorism. The issue as promoted by the Jerusalem conference and used by the Reagan administration is an ideological and instrumental issue. It is the ideology rather than the reality that dominates U.S. foreign policy today. Something about creating new realities with every move you make. Something like that. Now, pointedly not discussed at the Jerusalem conference, for obvious reasons, was the U.S., Israel's, and Britain's own sponsorship of terror networks around the world. Our secret paramilitary actions that perfectly met any definition of terrorism and as you read more about this new ideology of counter-terrorism and its evolution through the years heading most obviously towards 9-11 and beyond it becomes harder and harder not to wonder about the degree to which these states you know in the west and their allies can themselves be held responsible for fostering and supporting the terrorism they said they were fighting um, terrorism has been pretty good for business Let's face it For everyone except his victims And you know the people who live in the countries That we've invaded In response to terrorist attacks So all the hollowness Of, of much of the West rhetoric Around the subject Is probably illustrated Nowhere better than the fact That there were just 11 years Between 9-11 And the decision to finance and arm Al-Qaeda in Syria uh, Bush was fully on board with the new world of counterterrorism. If the Soviets were financing bloodthirsty terrorists around the world, then Jimmy Carter's faltering attempts at detente looked you know positively treasonous. And if the enemy was willing to go that far to ensure victory, then wasn't it incumbent really, on the West to show that they were ready to go even further? So why shouldn't the US explore every tool at its disposal in the fight against communism if it meant securing freedom for the world and yada, yada. So what are a few death squads and dead peasants in Latin America or the Middle East compared to that? And adopting the new hardline rhetoric of counterterrorism, which split the world into good and evil, basically. It serves so much of Bush's own agenda perfectly. The Jerusalem conference is a great example of his ability to shift with the times, you know, to alter his policies and outlook where it was politically expedient while always keeping his broader objectives in sight. We have talked before about how Reagan was the hurdy-gurdy man, you know singing songs of love to an American voting public that they've just grown sick of feeling uh, guilty and disillusioned after the chaos of the, the 60s and 70s. Now, Bush, who'd done more than anyone else to save the CIA from itself and rebuild the agency's image, you know, he adopted very similar rhetoric to Dutch in a speech he gave at the American Enterprise Institute in the summer of 1979 but he took pains to contrast his own approach with Reagan's by selling himself as a kind of pragmatic optimist, you know? Quote, I come here troubled about what I see ahead for us in 1981 and 1982. Things are tough right now and there is no quick fix to make things easy in 1980, but I see special difficulty for this country in 1981 and 1982. Clearly the three areas of trouble are inflation, energy, and what I call the diminution of U.S. credibility and respect around the world. That gets into the strategic balance, the conventional force imbalance, and the way other countries perceive the United States. So you see there, he's still seething the diminution of U.S. credibility. He's still very angry, as were a lot of his uh, crowd, over the perceived humiliation of Vietnam. And this strategic balance stuff kind of alludes to his Team B days, inflating the threat of the Soviet Union and the inferiority of the United States' defense capabilities. It goes on to say, quote, However, I want to say that I am fundamentally optimistic about this country. The fascinating experience of having lived in China reinforces my conviction that ours is a good country, an honorable country, a decent country. We have gone through a self-agony in the 1970s, during which we have looked inward. We have apologized for ourselves. We accepted a revisionistic view of our own purpose in Southeast Asia. We seem to be uncertain whether we can cope with and solve problems. We have departed from the fundamentals of economics. We have a Congress that seems to be less than responsive to the current mood of the people. Our young people have been turned off by Vietnam and Watergate, and by the overpromise and the failure to produce of this administration. So it's important to bear what I just quoted there and this newfangled counterterrorism stuff in mind when we talk about the enterprise because it served as the underlying justification for most of its activities as did you know big talk about human rights so it's best if we approach the network as something more fluid and horizontal than a hierarchical crime syndicate that was headed by poppy because that feels too packed And it doesn't align with the tangle of financial and political relationships that it encompasses. And in fact, when you try to read in depth about the enterprise, it's quite hard to find solid traces of Bush himself. And that's because he was a middleman and a fixer. Most of all, we've discussed this so many times. He was the guy who made the introductions and oversaw the resulting operations and schemes, but he rarely implicated himself by getting too directly involved. In plenty of testimony from the time about Iran-Contra or Reagan's covert wars or BCCI, Bush always seems to be the guy who left the room just before the conversation turned to the real dirt. So in a sense, he's kind of like a black hole in that his presence is detectable only by the effect that he has on other objects around him. And while he was still campaigning in the Republican primary, Poppy had a dozen or so highly secretive meetings with Ted Shackley, the blonde ghost. Shackley was a CIA Black Ops guy through and through, and he'd served under Bush as Deputy Director of Operations. By 1979, he was deeply involved in a covert assassination and unconventional warfare program with Thomas Kleins. Clines was another CIA old boy. He and Shackley had both been part of Operation 40, JM Wave, and the Bay of Pigs fiasco, as well as the overthrow of Allende in Chile and dope trafficking out of the Golden Triangle. Clines would be the only guy who ever did serious time, actually, for his role in Iran-Contra, and he personally recruited another Bay of Pigs veteran, uh, Rafael Quintero, to supervise Contra groups and work with, uh, Nicaragua's dictator Somoza on counterinsurgency tactics to defeat the Sandinistas. Shackley was determined to get Bush elected, and he was one of his biggest supporters from his CIA days, which is fucking saying something. So when the ghost was passed over for promotion to director after Bush had left the job, Shackley became embittered and very critical of his new boss, Stansfield Turner. Turner ordered an investigation into Shackley's activities and he discovered the secret team, which is a group of rogue spooks who'd worked on Operation 40 that answered to Shackley directly. And some of them were connected to the Nugent Bank, which we'll be looking at that in more depth another time because that's a great story, but for now what we need to know is that Nugent was a CIA front and it laundered tens of millions in drug money to fund off-the-books operations. And it's likely that it effectively replaced Castle Bank and Trust as the CIA's go-to source for DAC funding, you know, in that interim between Castle Bank and Trust and the rise of BCCI. And the bank also helped further consolidate the the ongoing process of intelligence privatization and outsourcing that had been championed by guys like Shackley and Bush and Edwin Wilson, because it enabled the agency to route money to allied intelligence operatives in other countries and provided some of the seed capital for the Safari Club at a time when the CIA was trying to Way out the controversies of the 1970s. Again, part five of Casino and part four as well. With Turner's investigative team uncovering the extent of Shackley's connections to Edwin Wilson and from Wilson to Nugent Hand, it was made clear that Shackley could either resign or be fired. He was certainly, you know, never going to become CIA director after this. So Shackley left the agency, at least on paper he left, but he still seemed to be receiving detailed briefings and intelligence analysis, which he passed along to Poppy and Reagan, which again, we've already got into this, but it shows you just how seriously um, the CIA within the CIA, the old boys really took this new um, post church committee push for more transparency and accountability, you know, and even more significantly, really, the complex web of offshore shell companies and bank accounts that Shackley and Kleins and other members of the secret team, as it's sometimes called, what they'd set up, that was going to become um, the most important method for moving and disguising funds for the enterprise in the years ahead. Now, Daniel Sheehan, who is a highly eccentric lawyer, to say the least, he represented two journalists, Tony Avajan and Martha Honey, in a civil suit the Christic Institute filed on their behalf in 1986. Now, remember, Danny Casolaro had been in touch with the Christic Institute during his own investigations, and they'd pointed him towards entities like Nugenthan Bank and BCCI and guys like Bo Gritz. Avajan and Honey were journalists who would go on to be credited with playing a major role in unraveling the activities of Oliver North during the Iran-Contra operation. They'd been injured in Nicaragua in 1984 when a bomb went off during a press conference that was being held by uh, Aidan the the Contra leader. They said that they'd found evidence the CIA was behind the attack, although it's likely the bomb was actually planted by an Argentinian leftist who was posing as a Danish photographer but anyway Sheehan turned the case into something of a circus and he was pretty heavily criticized for his tendency to spout some really wild paranoid theories but he did say this in his affidavit quote between 1976 and 1979 Shackley, Clines, Secord, Hakim, Wilson and Armitage these are all names of guys who were part of the embryonic enterprise, I suppose you could call it. They set up several corporations and subsidiaries around the world through which to conceal the operations of the secret team. Many of these corporations were set up in Switzerland. Some of these were Lake Resources Incorporated, the Stanford Technology Trading Group, Company their Services for Fiducieri. Other companies were set up in Central America, such as CSF Investments, Udall Research Corporation. Some were set up inside the United States by Edwin Wilson. Some of these were Orca Supply Company in Florida and Consultants International in Washington, DC. Through these corporations, members of Shackley's secret team laundered hundreds of millions of dollars of secret Vang Pao opium money, pilfered foreign military sales proceeds between 1976 and 1979. So to summarize, we have Ted Shackley, Arch Spook, Safari Club liaison, and supervisor of a vast money laundering operation with a global reach and he's meeting with Poppy Bush during the 1979 primary campaign. And Bush ostensibly is just supposed to be another politician looking to win the Republican presidential nomination. And these meetings take place in total secrecy. Shackley remains friendly with people still at the CIA and they feed him information that he passes along to Poppy to give him an edge. Shackley possibly also keeps Poppy informed about his ongoing efforts to set up covert funding channels for black ops that circumvent US law. And then when it becomes obvious that Reagan is going to run away with the nomination, it's partly the efforts of Shackley and future CIA director William Casey that ensure Bush is chosen as Reagan's running mate. And this is because Poppy was much more than a political candidate in 1979. He was what we might call a man of influence. He's what Peter Dale Scott would probably call a deep politician. He's someone who could call in favors from incredibly powerful people all around the world and who was so respected and admired by CIA insiders, that they felt compelled to take this risky step. Remember, this is 1979. This risky step of contravening the agency's supposedly ironclad rules about political neutrality to share briefings and intelligence with him, using guys like Shackley as conduits. Here is another example of Bush's indirect influence. And this is it's pretty fucking fascinating and very nutty. Okay. Um, just before we begin, big props to Russ Baker, the author of Family Secrets and the legendary Marina Oswald on Twitter for laying this all out in a comprehensible way. Um, this is one to file in the, the truth is out there folder because... It's a textbook case of how unsettling details tend to undermine officially sanctioned accounts of Bush's life. But at the same time, you can't really use these details to form much in the way of a a coherent alternative narrative. You know, it's so frustrating, basically because too much has been suppressed or forgotten. It's too hard to get a fair hearing. And because of the media's near total refusal to engage with any of it, you know, you do start to feel like you are stuck in limbo with some of this stuff, just slowly driving yourself crackers. So in 1978, George W. Bush ran for the House of Representatives. This is Bush the Younger, not Poppy, obviously. And W.'s brother, Neil, moved to Texas to help him run the campaign. And he did, respectably. You know, he pulled around 46% of the vote, but it wasn't enough to get him elected. So far, so ordinary, except you will find an interesting name when you read about his campaign donors, because one of them was the Denver-based Hinckley family. The patriarch of the Hinckley clan was John Warnock Hinckley Sr. He was the founder, the chairman, chief executive, and president of Vanderbilt Energy Corporation. Vanderbilt was a relatively small company, but it was a Pretty successful one. By the late 70s, it operated 82 oil wells and 120 natural gas wells spread across six states. And it also had holdings in Canada. Hinckley Sr. made a point of writing his favorite Bible quote under his signature at the end of Vanderbilt's annual reports. It was Proverbs 16.3, quote, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. And so Bush the Younger, wasn't the only politician either that Hinckley Sr. donated to. He also gave money to Ronald Reagan and his opponent John Connolly in 1980, and of course donated some money to Poppy too. Now the same year the Hinckleys donated to W's unsuccessful election bid, John Hinckley Jr. was giving college another shot over at Texas Tech. John was a misfit who'd He'd already dropped out of college once, he'd drifted to the West Coast in the hope of making it big as an actor or a screenwriter or a musician. In 1975, this is during his first spell at Texas Tech, he freaked out when he was assigned a black roommate. He started reading uh, Mein Kampf obsessively um, in response to this. And thereafter he became fascinated by fascist politics. He even took part in a march as a stormtrooper with the National Socialist Party of America in honor of George Lincoln Rockwell. And he became obsessed with Jodie Foster after he saw a taxi driver and started sending her letters and poems he'd written. Shortly after Hinckley started hearing voices, "Mm -hmm," he decided he'd impress Foster by killing Jimmy Carter. And he began stalking Carter across America. And at some point in the late 70s, he came to claim membership of another Nazi group called American Front. Although American Front wouldn't actually exist until 1984. Mm -hmm. So during one scouting trip to Dayton in 1980, he got close enough to Jimmy Carter to actually reach out and touch him. I believe he actually pops up in the old newsreel uh, footage of this visit. You can see him in the crowd. Shortly afterwards... He flew to Nebraska to meet the leader of the American Nazi Party, which would have been uh, Matthias Cole at the time. And the meeting apparently fell through. So Hinkley flew to Nashville, intent on killing Carter while he was on the campaign trail. And he later said he had a change of heart at the airport and his mission failed anyway, when a suitcase that he was carrying that was packed with guns set off a metal detector. And somehow... Hinckley was let off with a warning and a $50 fine. And this despite the fact that the president was in town the same day. So the feds, the secret service and the FAA, they all came up with one reason or another to explain why Hinckley was never flagged or added to a list of potential security threats. I know all this sounds incredibly strange. So I would recommend you go read Marina's piece for more information. Uh, It's a little more than we can get into here, but there are so many troubling details in this story that leave you feeling just rattled and uncomfortable, you know, feeling like something much bigger is hiding just out of sight here. So, eventually, Hinckley switched his focus to Reagan. Uh, in an interesting echo of how Lee Harvey Oswald is said to have tried to hit Edwin Walker before he settled on JFK. And on March 30th, 1981, Hinckley tried to kill Dutch outside the Washington Hilton Hotel. Everybody has heard this story. Uh, Chase Untmeyer, he was one of Poppy Bush's aides. He wrote this in his memoir. Quote, I washed up and went to bed for a nap before writing this entry. Around one30 I was awakened by a call from Art Wise of the Houston Post. Art related the possibility that Neil Bush, the vice president's son, may be acquainted with the alleged assailant John W. Hinckley Jr. Neil and Sharon do know Hinckley's brother in Denver and we're planning to have dinner with them tomorrow night. So, the night after the assassination attempt. The Hinckleys are a prosperous family and John Senior may have been a Bush campaign contributor. Art wanted to know if this connection was known by GB, George Bush, Poppy. As Art pointed out, even a slight Bush connection in this shooting could set off the conspiracy freaks. What's up? GB asked, seeing us all there. Did you talk to Neil last night? Pete asked us as we entered the West Basement No, is it about this guy? Yes, Jesus. We all went into the VP's office where Pete related the story that Wise had been working on and which was being played big in Houston and over the wires. GB appeared only mildly concerned. So little in fact, that he didn't even think to call Barbara or ask any of us to do so. The Hinckley and Bush families had in fact been friendly with each other for decades prior to this. They were both transplants to Texas, looking to make money out of the oil boom. And both families were connected to the CIA. Scott Hinckley, which is John Jr's brother, he was close enough to Neil Bush that he'd attended a surprise birthday party at Neil's house. While the Bush family were Eastern establishment operatives, you know, bonesmen who could call in favors from people like Alan Dulles, the Hinckley's were evangelical Christians and John Hinckley Sr. had at one point been president of World Vision. World Vision is a fundamentalist Christian humanitarian aid charity that receives funding from USAID, which is a probable CIA cutout. World Vision missionaries were frequent visitors at the Happy Haven's rest home, which had been set up and was run by none other than Jim Jones. This is pre-Guyana, obviously. World Vision also had a presence at the same refugee camps in Honduras from which the CIA would recruit Contra fighters. And it was accused of using children in Vietnam to spy on behalf of the CIA. Former members of Cuban exile groups like Alpha 66 came to exert an outsized influence on World Vision's operations in Central America. John Hinckley Jr. isn't even the only famous assassin from the turn of the eighties with a connection to this organization. Mark Chapman, the guy who killed John Lennon, had also worked as a World Vision missionary at one time. So naturally, Poppy and his sons never really shared anything particularly useful about the exact nature of their relationship with the Hinckleys. And the mainstream press quietly dropped the subject. That happens a lot with stories around the Bush family. And as if all of this wasn't strange enough, just before the attempted hit on Reagan, Vanderbilt received word from the Department of Energy that they were being investigated for overcharging for oil from its stripper wells in Texas. A stripper well. Is an oil well that has essentially been totally depleted. You know, it's on the last dregs. At Hinckley's direction, Vanderbilt filed an administrative claim of harassment against the Department of Energy and the firm's lawyer, Craig Dodd, like any good shithouse attorney, to be fair. He described the Department of Energy threat as quote, the most oppressive, outrageous, inexcusable, heavy-handed government action I have ever seen. On the day of Hinckley Jr.'s attempt to kill Reagan, before he'd actually arrived outside the Washington Hilton, the Department of Energy notified Vanderbilt that it was going to issue a $2 million fine against them. Now remember, Vanderbilt is a successful um, energy company, but it's not bulletproof. You know, We're not talking about Exxon here or Shell or something. $2 million fine would put quite a dent in their plans But then after Reagan has been shot, the fine never materialized and Hinckley Sr. quietly dropped his claim of harassment. I'll leave you with Russ Baker's summary of this entire affair. Make of it what you will. Quote, John W. Hinckley's brother, Scott, attends a surprise birthday party at Neil Bush's house in a period when John Hinckley was suffering serious mental problems. The government exerts financial pressure on the Hinckley family business. Hinckley shoots President Reagan, nearly making Neil Bush's father the president. The financial pressure on the Hinckleys disappears. George H.W. Bush is in charge of the investigation of the shooting. The Hinckleys chalk it all up to their son's demons. Everyone focuses on Jodie Foster. And that's the end of that.
0: Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore, who would not let Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum, the cunts, the dogs, the filth, the shit. Here is someone who stood up. Here
2: is... We'll look at one more example of this, this indirect influence. And this one opens up that broader enterprise network. And it's a doozy to be honest. So we've previously discussed Bandar bin Sultan and his close relationship to the Bush family. Uh, Bush Jr. nicknamed him Bandar Bush, and he's supposed to have seen bin Sultan as someone he could seek counsel from. Bin Sultan's power and influence came from his position in the Saudi royal family. Uh, He served as a, a crucial liaison between the Saudis and the West, and he was seen as a very skilled and discreet negotiator. One of his specialties was brokering arms deals. Uh, He secured the sale of US AWACS surveillance craft to the Saudi Arabian, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in the early 80s. This was something of a coup, given the Israel lobby's opposition to the deal, you know. And he wasn't only influential in US political circles. In 1985, he helped broker the Al-Yamama Arms deal with BAE Systems. This deal was worth about 50 billion pounds and it was as shady as you'd expect given how many key members of Le Cercle and the Mayfair set were closely involved with it. Uh, Thatcher had led the charge actually. She'd um, even gone so far as to push to outbid the French um, and at the urging of Lord Charles Powell and Norman Lamont, they were both Lee members. Uh, Lamont was at that point UK Minister of Defence Procurement as well. Anyway, at their urging, a clause was inserted into the contract that guaranteed the British government would pay BAE Systems if the Saudis didn't come through uh, with the money. Mark Thatcher is supposed to have taken a 12 million pound commission while Bin Sultan is supposed to have received a yearly payment of between 50 and 100 million pounds for his role in the negotiations. Tens of millions more mysteriously vanished into offshore accounts. Um, and every attempt really to investigate where this money went, how a deal this crooked was possible, who facilitated it, it's been stormwalled by the British establishment, the National Audit Office, they commissioned a report in, I think, 1992. And it was rumoured to fully map out all the key players and how much they made on commissions and kickbacks from the deal. But it was classified as top secret and it was never released. The Serious Fraud Office began investigating uh, the arms deal in earnest in 2004. But by 2006, the Saudi government openly threatened to stop sharing intelligence with MI6 if the SFO didn't back off. And Tony Blair obligingly stepped in and shut the investigation down. BAE Systems, I think, eventually paid something like £260 million in fines to both the US and British governments, but this is, you know, a drop in the ocean compared to what they actually made on this deal. Bin Sultan's role not just for the Americans, but also for the British here, was to provide a handy way of circumventing laws that otherwise inhibited particular intelligence operations or trade deals. And this was in turn the enterprise's entire purpose during the 80s. And it's why guys like Bin Sultan and Adnan Khashoggi proved so useful to Bush's network. Iran-Contra is the most notorious example of how that circumvention works in practice. So I'm going to briefly crack here. I was trying to do this episode in such a way that we talked around Iran-Contra without actually talking about it, but we just can't do it. So (laughs) I'm going to try and summarize Iran-Contra as quickly as possible, just to ensure we are all on the same page here. Are you ready? Okay. Iran was a US ally under the Shah but then they had a revolution. Nicaragua had been a US ally under Somoza, but then they had a revolution. The new government in Tehran th- uh, gained access to all the weapons the US had been supplying to the Shah. Jimmy Carter imposed an arms embargo to demonstrate US resolve you know, against the revolutionary Islamic government. When the war between Iran and Iraq started in 1980, Iran would obviously need replacement parts and new guns to continue the fight. The Americans then began a diplomatic mission to persuade other countries not to sell weapons to Iran in the hope that Saddam Hussein, who was, you know, a US ally at that point, in the hope that he would emerge victorious. His victory would be hastened by this. But then some high-level Reagan guys had one of their get togethers and they realized that it didn't really matter if the US and their allies didn't sell the Iranians weapons because the Soviets could step in and supply them anyway. Plus, you can't really guarantee that allied states aren't routing equipment to the Iranians through some you know, secret method you're not aware of anyway, because geopolitics is a giant game of murder in the dark. So Reagan's guys concluded that the embargo Risk Iran falling into the Soviet sphere and they were leaving cash money on the table if they didn't try to find a way to start selling guns to the Iranians again. Reagan, meanwhile, was going fucking ham on the new leftist Sandinista government in Nicaragua. The Contras were a collection of counter-revolutionary groups that sprung up in opposition to the Sandinistas, the new government. These Contra groups were basically right-wing death squads. There's no two ways about it. Uh, They functioned much the same way that the Cuban exile groups had done. You know, they waged a campaign of torture, murder, rape, atrocities that were meant to terrorize the civilian population of Nicaragua and destabilize the Sandinistas base. Anyone who says to you, oh, you know, actually, there were some pro-democracy forces in there in the early days, they are splitting hairs in service of the US State Department and they deserve nothing but your content. Reagan wanted to give the Contras more financing and equipment so that they could continue this campaign against the Sandinistas. And the CIA had been carrying out a covert program of assassination and sabotage to support the Contras anyway, but they'd been doing this without congressional oversight or knowledge. When Congress found out, they brought in the Borland Amendment, which made it effectively illegal for U.S. intelligence agencies to provide aid to the Contras. But the key part of this is intelligence agencies. Uh, Poppy Bush's circle realized that if they just took the money they were going to send to the Contras and routed it through the National Security Council instead of you know, the CIA, this may be technically legal. But then Congress moved to block this, So, John Poindexter and his deputy, Oliver North, in my opinion, at the direction of Poppy Bush, sought Contra funding through Baghdad channels. One way to do this was by secretly selling weapons to the Iranians and using the profits to support the Contras. Thus was born what we officially know as the enterprise, or at least this aspect of its activities. So, in summary, You can think of it as a kind of two birds with one stone deal. They violated the arms embargo against Iran by selling them guns and other hardware with the help of the British, the Israelis and the Saudis. Then the enterprise used this money to finance the Contras. When this was all exposed in 1986, the Reagan administration initially denied everything until the weight of evidence made this look fucking absurd. Then they claimed the arms shipments were actually part of a secret diplomatic effort to free seven Americans that Hezbollah had taken hostage in Lebanon. My heart and my best intentions, you know, and all the rest of it. Despite the best efforts of congressional reports and the media, there are too many anomalies in the official story to buy that this was all just some well-intentioned goof, you know, whoops-a-daisy. For one thing, there's now plenty of evidence to suggest that the CIA, at the very least, protected contras who were involved in coke trafficking. And to be fair, you can go one step further and say the CIA was outright involved in moving coke. And the resulting crack epidemic in American inner cities has been documented at length elsewhere. So we won't get into that here. But I highly recommend Gary Webb, of course, that outstanding heroic work that he did on the subject. And then... As people pursued these unsettling leftover threads of Iran-Contra, they realized it it was a rabbit hole that went deeper and deeper. And the more you read into it, the more you have to uh, conclude that Iran-Contra was just one consequence of what appears to have been, and I'm not exaggerating here, a genuine, sincere attempt to set up an actual shadow government. Poindexter, working with guys like Shackley and other operatives, set up a Byzantine system of slush funds and front companies and offshore bank accounts through which they could launder the untold millions the enterprise was generating. And this was where BCCI was going to prove indispensable. They also reached out to private individuals to facilitate gun deals and money transfers. Bin Sultan, personally arranged as much as $30 million in financing for the Contras, while Adnan Khashoggi served as a crucial broker between the US, Israel, and Iran. It was an incredibly complex system of payoffs and kickbacks and shakedowns. And this is from the New York Times in 1986, and I think it illustrates how much bigger the story actually was than many people even really appreciate today. I mean... When I first started reading in earnest about Iran-Contra five or six years ago, I thought I knew the broad outlines of the story, but (laughs) I was mistaken. Anyway, New York Times, quote... The Saudi discussions with Americans about supplying arms to the Contras involved Colonel North, Major General Richard V. Secord, who retired as a Pentagon official in 1983 and was familiar with Saudi affairs, and Albert Hakim, a former Iranian businessman with close ties to Saudi Arabia and a business partner of General Secord, according to sources and documents. Mr. Hakim and General Secord did not return our phone calls. Okay, get ready because this is quite a long excerpt, but it's very important to get a feel for this complexity. Quote, in early 1984, Charles P. Tyson, a colleague of Colonel North at the National Security Council left the White House to work for Mr. Khashoggi, according to two former White House officials. Mr. Khashoggi later told an associate that Mr. Tyson was responsible for introducing him to Robert C. McFarlane, the former National Security Advisor, and other National Security Council officials for talks about the arms deals and Iran. Mr. Tyson, who was said by associates to be in Madrid could not be reached. Ronald Kessler, author of a biography of Mr. Khashoggi, titled The Richest Man in the World, said he was told that Mr. Khashoggi and Mr. McFarlane had several meetings, including one in the White House in the spring of 1985, when Mr. McFarlane was still national security advisor. So here we're seeing this overlap of public and private interests, you know, that we discussed earlier. In 1984 and 1985, General Secar directed the acquisition of materials, including small airplanes, to help the Contras, according to sources familiar with the acquisition and documents. His associates included Mr. Hakim and Robert H. Lilac, who had been a superior of Colonel North at the National Security Council, according to the sources and documents. Mr. Lilac is now a consultant to Prince Bandar, the Saudi ambassador, according to a former White House aide and an official at the Saudi Embassy, who said, Mr. Lilac was out of the country. There was lots of this <laughs> during the, uh, the fallout of Iran-Contra. Lots of missed phone calls and people unavailable for comment or suddenly leaving the country or turning up dead. By 1985, both the United States and Saudi Arabia, with the assistance of Israeli arms dealers, Mr. Khashoggi and a confidant of King Fahd of Saudi Arabia, had begun discussions with Iran. The ensuing arms purchases involve financial transactions centered around Mr. Khashoggi and related companies. For example, copies of 1986 bank records show two checks from Manusha, Gorbanifar, the Iranian arms dealer who was the liaison to Iran, to Mr. Khashoggi, totaling $5 million. Other checks totaling $12 million from Mr. Gorbanifar were deposited in an account at the Monte Carlo branch of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, a bank tied to former top Saudi officials. The records also show. Most of the participants in the arms deals, including Mr. Gobanafar, the Israeli arms dealers, Mr. Hakim, Mr. Khashoggi and Saudi officials had accounts with the same banks in Switzerland, according to bank records and sources familiar with the operation. Gobanafar is an arms dealer and he was an agent for Iranian intelligence under the Shah. And then he probably uh, jumped ship and became a spy for the revolutionary government as well. He was an agent for Israeli intelligence And he was a CIA asset. So he is widely considered to be an almost like (laughs) ludicrously cartoonishly treacherous and duplicitous figure. Like the the ultimate spy, ultimate piece of shit. Uh, He wound up returning to public consciousness in the buildup to the Iraq war. Because he was supplying the US government with nonsense about weapons of mass destruction, you know. But... He and Khashoggi are of particular relevance to our octopus series for two reasons. One, both of them were also directly involved in facilitating the sale of promise to state agencies around the world. One of their customers was Khalid bin Mahfouz. Now, bin Mahfouz was a Saudi billionaire who was chairman of the Saudi National Commercial Bank. He earned a 20% stake in BCCI as well, and he invested heavily in Bush Jr.'s Harkin Energy Company. He's been named repeatedly as a key source of financing for Al Qaeda, although he's threatened litigation pretty much every time this has come up. And he was even described as Osama Bin Laden's brother-in-law by CIA director James Wolseley during his testimony to a congressional subcommittee. But then, uh, wouldn't you know it, Wolseley had a change of heart. And he said he'd been confused um, during the session and he'd misspoke. The fact that Bin Mafus bought Promise adds a little bit more juice to this notion that we've been toying with, that Promise was at least in part modified and adapted to monitor and possibly manipulate uh, international financial markets or certainly transactions at large financial institutions, institutions like BCCI. A letter that was written May 14th, 1985 by the Assistant Attorney General William Bradford Reynolds, addressed to U.S. Attorney William F. Weld, adds a little bit more detail to how the bugged promise was sold, and confirms that its sale was sanctioned by elements of the U.S. government just by virtue of this letter existing. Uh, It says, quote, "'As agreed, Messieurs Manishur Garbanefa, Adnan Khashoggi, and Richard Armitage will broker the transaction of the Promise software to Sheikh Khalid bin Mahfouz for resale and general distribution and gifts in his region, contingent upon the three conditions we last spoke of. Promise must have a soft arrival. No paperwork, customs, or delays. It must be equipped with the special data retrieval unit. As before, you must walk the financial aspects through Credit Suisse into National Commercial Bank. If you have any problems, contact me directly. Credit Suisse is a spook bank that served as a crucial financial conduit for the enterprise. From the LA Times, May 1987, quote, Hundreds of Swiss bank documents recording transactions by key participants in the Iran-Contra scandal will be released soon to US investigators, Swiss officials said today. The papers cover about 20 American, Iranian, Swiss and Saudi Arabian individuals and companies associated with bank accounts at Credit Suisse in Geneva. Among those named were Marine Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, fired from President Reagan's National Security Council for his role in the scandal, and retired U.S. Air Force Major General Richard V. Secord. The accounts include a string of bonus companies set up by North, Secord, and others, such as Lake Resources and Album Values Corporation, as well as various personal accounts. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> 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 no, it's a, 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 a you'll understand
2: <laughs> when you're in yeah. the
1: fucking ah, we, okay. <laughs> you need a bigger couch for yeah, guests
0: yeah 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 I don't understand I'm sorry <laughs> I'm curious <laughs> about your bank secrecy laws here uh
3: wait yes excusez-moi Jordan Swiss costume requires 10 minutes of uh, blah 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 chit-chat yeah chit-chat thank you before business can be discussed yeah course. Let's get down to it. What would you like to
0: know? Under what circumstances would you be obligated to cooperate with an FBI or, or a US Justice Department investigation, for example? Ça dépend. Ça dépend? Wait. Oui. Ça dépend on, on, on what exactly?
3: Whether America plans to invade Switzerland in the coming months. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so check if tanks are rolling down the Rue de la
2: Croix,
3: huh? Yes, Rue de la Croix. Croix, Croix.
2: Uh, Croix.
3: Croix. Croix. Not Croix, no, not Rue de la Croix.
2: La Croix. <laughs> See, this is what I used to do back in law school. Check with champagne, jambania. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, French fries. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind And of, that kind of stuff. What I'm asking, you Swiss dick, is are you going to fuck me over? I
3: understand perfectly, you American shit. The only way the Banque Reale de Genève would cooperate with a foreign legal body is if the crime being pursued is also a crime in Switzerland. But there are very few Swiss laws which apply to your um, practices.
0: Hmm.
3: From a financial standpoint, you are now in heaven.
2: See, I told you he was fantastic, right?
3: If the U.S. Justice Department sent us a subpoena, Mm -hmm. it would become a papier toilette.
0: We would wipe our ass with it. (laughs) Unless, of course, it was an investigation into stock fraud, which is a crime here in Switzerland, if I'm correct, then there would have to be cooperation on your part, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Yes, yes, we would. Mm
0: -hmm. Assuming the account
3: is under your name. If it were another name, a friend, a camarade.
2: Cousin? Cousin,
0: absolutely Relative. Yeah. Hmm. Was that yodeling I just heard, or did you just say what I thought you said? Yes, yes. He's telling me to use a fucking rat hole. But a U.S. rat
2: hole would never get into Switzerland with all that money. What I needed was a rat hole with a European passport. The other reason that Khashoggi and Galbanafar are especially relevant, as with the Al Yamama arms deal or the wackenhut Cabazon joint venture, their presence here demonstrates what we were saying earlier, which is that however you want to define the enterprise, the activities went far beyond selling arms to Iran or funding the Contras. It was an exercise in obtaining power, yeah, and subverting democracy, but there was also a great deal of personal enrichment going on as well. The links to BCCI and Credit Suisse, the involvement in drug trafficking and money laundering, there were lots of favours, is what I'm trying to say, lots of favours stretching back to the October surprise and beyond that, they were being repaid here. And there were much deeper ideological reasons underpinning the objective um, that motivated selling bugged copies of promise to as many buyers as possible. But again, we're not there yet. Bin Sultan also did other favors for the CIA during this period that ostensibly had nothing to do with Iran-Contra, but are part of the web of corruption. And it again demonstrates the the indirect influence of a guy like Poppy Bush. So in the early 80s, at the agency's request, he oversaw the transfer of around $10 million to the Italian Christian Democrats, which was a contribution to their campaign war chest designed to frustrate the Italian Communist Party. Now, we'll remember here that Propaganda Due was deep into its strategy of tension campaign against the Italian left. And Licio Jelly is said to have considered Poppy Bush an honorary member of P2. His codename is uh, uh, supposedly the White Rose. That was what George Bush was known as. And Nicaragua wasn't the only place where the Enterprise's foot soldiers and hired guns were raping and killing with the backing of the US security state. By 1983, There were an estimated 200 CIA staff and assorted US mercenaries in El Salvador. They were helping to train and arm government troops there. Some eyewitness accounts have CIA agents directly taking part in firefights and atrocities um, alongside the the Salvadoran troops. The US also supported the coup in Fiji in 1987. They assisted South Africa with counterintelligence operations against the African National Congress, and in return the apartheid government sent equipment and money to the Contras. William Casey, who was at this point the head of the CIA, obtained Reagan's approval to try to overthrow the, the Suriname government, which was only aborted because Dutch intelligence discovered the plot. Casey also oversaw a botched hit on Sheikh Fadlala uh, in Lebanon, and this was in revenge for the embassy and marine barracks bombings of 1983. Now, this plan involved the use of a car bomb in Beirut that killed 80 people, maimed another 200, and never came close to scratching... uh, the CIA was burning 45 million dollars a year supporting Angolan rebels by the time Reagan left office. They were spending about 10 million dollars a year in Cambodia to indirectly support the Khmer Rouge ultimately uh, and tens of millions more were routed through the National Endowment for Democracy to support other movements and insurgencies that were hostile to governments the US didn't like. The list of interventions and back channel support for covert ops during this time it goes on and on. Chile, Argentina, Ethiopia, Honduras, Libya, Chad, Dominica, Panama, tens of millions. Uh, not all of it coming from the US government, of course, a lot of it coming from the the security state apparatus' involvement in outright illegal um, trades, you know, in drugs and guns. Um all of it spent to basically kill and maim tens of thousands of people, some of it, you know, covertly, some of it carried out in full view of the world. And every single time, the administration's underlying justification for all the chaos and the bloodshed was anti-communism and counter-terrorism and human rights or some combination of these three. In fact, Elliot Abrams appears to have made it a personal mission of his, to transform the definition of human rights into something closer to whatever the US wants to do in support of its own self-interest, you know? And you can still find plenty of interviews with him from the time and right up to the present day, justifying the rapes and murders carried out by US-backed death squads in Nicaragua and elsewhere. And he never so much as breaks a sweat while he's doing this. And then there's Afghanistan. Uh, We talked about the US support for the Mujahideen fighters um, at length in cartel world last summer. But I wanna zero in on a couple of specifics that I think are relevant to this miniseries and this episode especially. So for one, There's the dope trafficking, untold millions that were generated by the Americans pet heroin warlords over the course of the war. And in conjunction with the ISI, the CIA laundered their cut of the profits through banks like BCCI to finance many of the other operations we've just discussed. Individual agents also took a percentage for themselves and stashed it in offshore retirement funds as well. And additionally, in supporting the more hardline, fanatical elements of the insurgency, elements which were themselves involved in, you know, CIA and ISI heroin and opium trafficking. People like, I don't know, Osama bin Laden say, the U.S. was creating the perfect conditions for blowback. Uh, The hardliners, the CIA and U.S. military staff who genuinely believed the Soviet Union was financing a global terrorist network. They were themselves laying the groundwork for what would become al-Qaeda and all that that entailed. Domestically, the coke and the heroin flowing into the states transformed neighborhoods into free fire zones, and it gave perfect justification for ever harsher clampdowns by the police and the feds. It accelerated the development of the prison industrial complex, and the militarization of U.S. policing, you have an entire government operating under a deranged paranoia. It claims it's besieged by enemies within and without, and then it uses the chaos that it creates to retroactively justify these authoritarian crackdowns and hide its own corruption. So it's hard not to flash once again to what Mr. Lee said in From Hell, and to paraphrase that, We made it all up, and it all came true anyway. It was business that created business. So when you appreciate the sheer scale of the Reagan-era deep states activities, you know, Iran-Contra makes more sense as a limited hangout than some grand expose of an intricate system of corruption. When the op was blown, there was some initial panic, no doubt, But then the realisation slowly dawned on the key players that with some adept tweaking, the narrative could be manipulated and even spun to protect the much bigger network. Even the people who were asked to fall on their swords for the major players like Bush didn't really pay that bigger price in the end. Uh, Oliver North experienced some momentary discomfort, of course, but all his convictions were eventually reversed on appeal. And you can find him sharing his thoughts on Twitter these days, you know. And the network of spooks and power players who'd effectively started a slow motion coup d'etat in Dallas in 1963 were now fully in charge of the US government by the 1980s with Reagan as their Hollywood fried frontman. And something that they had never forgotten was the chaos of the 1960s and the early 70s. You know, chaos for which they'd largely been responsible, by the way. But for a brief window of time, it really had seemed to them like a counter-cultural revolution was possible. Oliver North was of the firm belief that the US Army didn't actually lose the war in Vietnam. It lost the battle for hearts and minds back home. And he wasn't the only person in a position of considerable Power who believed this, the resentment they felt over Vietnam and the exposure of all this covert government activity in the mid 70s, that was still there. You know, it'd been festering. And while there was a lot of greed and cynical politicking underpinning their activities in the 80s, there was something else as well, which was the fanatical desire to beat back what we might call the threat of democracy. To their way of thinking, any activity at all that contradicted their policy objectives from anti-war demonstrations at home to the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua, anything like that was terroristic by definition. And this brings us to a truly fascinating aspect of the enterprise. We've already touched on it and it's usually given short shrift in uh, mainstream accounts of the time. The secret government, the skull and bones, lalilu lo baby. Theodore Draper, he was one of the few to pick up on the deeper implications of the Iran-Contra affair. And he wrote this in um, his piece, The Rise of the American Junta. Quote, if ever the constitutional democracy of the United States is overthrown, We now have a better idea of how this is likely to be done. That may be the most important contribution of the recent Iran contra-congressional hearings. This aspect of the scandal was so sensitive that when Oliver North was asked about it during the hearings, um, you know, asked about some of his more um, extravagant plans... Uh, that he'd drawn up through the mid-1980s. The sessions were actually suspended. All the questions were only permitted behind closed doors. Uh, Peter Dell Scott has written at length about how counter-terrorism was used by George Bush and Oliver North to justify the following. Quote, an undeclared proxy war against Nicaragua in defiance of congressional opposition, creating a special network for developing policies ostensibly at odds with official White House policy, using publicly generated funds to defeat opponents of the Contra proxy war in Congress, using publicly generated funds to propagandize the American people, using publicly generated funds to interfere with witnesses to real Contra terrorism, covering up contra-drug trafficking and planning for massive warrantless detention. This last bit, this plan for warrantless detention, was part of something called continuity of government planning, or, as Peter Dell Scott refers to it, the doomsday project. And before we go any further, just a few more sp- specifics on the question of how involved Poppy Bush was in these activities. You know, how much did he actually know? Bush's national security advisor in 1983 was Donald Gregg. And he worked with other members of Bush's staff to essentially take control of Central American policy from the State Department with Poppy's blessing. Now in 1982, William Casey briefed Bush directly on the Contra supply operation and he used the vice president's office as cover for this activity. And for this, he obtained Bush's consent. An intelligence operative called Richard Brunecki says that Michael Harari, who was a Mossad agent who was managing part of the arms sales to Iran, uh, if ever he was asked under whose authority he was doing this, Harari would give out Donald Gregg's number, and this implicitly um, suggested to people that this meant George Bush was aware of what was going on, and he had, in fact, authorized this. Uh, Roberto Diaz Herrera, who's the second in command of the Panama Defense Forces, he says that he was at a meeting between Bush and Manuel Noriega, during which Bush asked Noriega to use his cocaine prophets and military trainers to support the Contras. Remember, Noriega had been a longtime CIA asset by this point. And Bush had, in fact, been director of the CIA, you know, while that relationship was developing. Felix Rodriguez, the Cuban exile and CIA agent. He met with Bush's staff 17 times to discuss the Iran-Contra operation, and Bush attended three of these meetings. Rodriguez, in turn, worked with John F. Molina, who's a Cuban underworld fixer who'd run the Panamanian branch of World Finance Corporation on behalf of Guillermo Hernández Catea, who we talked about in Casino. Molina supervised money laundering for the arms supermarket. Um, This was a gun trafficking network that received $14 million in seed capital from the CIA. Oliver North once told um, Barbara Studley, at that time she was the president of a defense contractor called Geo Militech, that the $14 million in CIA funding was all drug money. So the CIA uses drug money to finance the supermarket. It's overseen by Molina, who reports to Felix Rodriguez, who is being run by Poppy Bush. Uh, And incidentally, as the Iran-Contra affair was unraveling, uh, Molina was actually shot dead um, in the course of that. And then there's this troubling extract. This is from a 1986 diary entry that Poppy himself wrote, quote, On the news at this time is the question of the American hostages. I'm one of the few people that know fully the details, and there is a lot of flack and misinformation out there. It is not a subject we can talk about. And you'll read a lot of accounts from Bush and his circle about how he was out of the loop. That's a phrase they use all the time. He was out of the loop, and he had no operational involvement in any of the real dirt but I think it's safe to say that's a total lie, you know. What he had instead was a devoted team of insiders who did their best to wipe his prints from various crime scenes, you know. But even then, plenty of people were still willing to talk. What he'd done, and you see this all the time in uh, mafia-type organizations, he'd simply built up layers of insulation between himself and the the day-to-day operations but there's no way that he wasn't indirectly passing advice and guidance, you know, through different channels of communication. There is an alternative view as well of Iran Contra that's probably worth mentioning um, for completion's sake. And that alternative view is that just like Watergate, details of the scheme were deliberately leaked. By Bush supporters to remove Reagan from power and have Poppy installed as president. I'm not sure it's an especially compelling theory because, you know, there are so many moving parts and so much risk of blowback in doing something like this. And Poppy appears, for all intents and purposes, to have wielded more power and influence than Reagan anyway during the 80s without serving as that lightning rod figure, you know, that a president does. But I figured I'd include the theory here anyway, um, because I think it, it illustrates how much paranoia and speculation this period has generated. You know, it was a time of schemes within schemes, you know, down the rabbit hole, through the looking glass and into wonderland levels of corruption and conspiracy. And it's easy to lose your bearings and start to believe that they really are capable of anything. Because so often it seems like they are, you know, especially given the Bush enterprise's skill at using legal trickery and technicalities to manipulate policy to its advantage. And don't forget that thing that we just read by Peter Dale Scott using untold amounts of money to influence and propagandize public opinion, you know, through the media. It's no surprise at all that they possibly would also start using conspiracy theories as a shield, you know, feeding stuff into particularly influential voices in like the alternative press. Uh, One more example of this indirect influence, this legal trickery and use of technicalities, uh, something that I think is worth discussing before we talk continuity of government is deregulation. Now, the voice you're about to hear is Pete Bruton. is the author of The Mafia, The CIA, and George Bush. That is a phenomenal book. Highly recommend you you find yourself a copy if you can.
1: Before we get into the intricacies of it, I wonder if you can tell us uh, how George Bush himself was involved in this. His family was, but was he himself involved much?
4: Bush's role was on many levels. First of all, as vice president during the Reagan-Bush years, he was the head of the Reagan-Bush deregulation efforts across the board, and that included savings and loans. And the deregulation of savings and loans that occurred primarily in 1982 with the uh, St. Germain-Garn bill, um, basically opened up savings and loans to the crooks. Uh, s and had traditionally just done home mortgage lending uh, to middle-class Americans, and they succeeded very well for 50 years and uh, they had some problems then in the late 70s and early 80s with the inflation so the bush reagan bush administration and congress decided that they were going to deregulate quote unquote savings and loans and this allowed snls to basically invest their money and lend their money on anything they wanted to and was an open invitation to the criminal element and sure enough the mafia was one of the first people uh, groups involved in looting snls in the early 80s And the deregulation that Bush was in charge of did that. Uh, Bush also, as vice president, either he or his top aides intervened in the federal regulation of the biggest failed savings loan in the country at that time, Sunrise Savings in Boynton Beach, Florida. The CEO of Sunrise went up to Bush's office when he was vice president, and the the story varies. He tells one story one time and one story another. He either met with Bush with Bush's top aides, included C. Boyden and Gray, who is the current White House counsel. Uh, and he asked them to get the federal regulators off his back. They were trying to stop Sunrise from basically throwing their assets away. And uh, one week after he met with these people, uh, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, that regulates savings and loans, withdrew a very stringent cease and desist order against Sunrise and replaced it with a weak supervisory agreement. And a congressional study found that this move cost taxpayers possibly $100 million or more in keeping Sunrise open. Sunrise was then closed down a year later, a year and a half later, uh, at a cost to the federal taxpayers of $700 million. And there was no Federal Home Loan Bank Board investigation. It was just shut down. Uh, we find if you look at the major borrowers at Sunrise you find mafia people, you find CIA people, and you find a Houston businessman named John Riddle, who he ties into a, the circle of Houston businessmen that George Bush comes from. And Riddle, at this time, was involved in the transshipment of arms to the Middle East. Now, the top number two official at the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, and Fairbanks, was in this meeting with the Sunrise CEO when he was asking them to get the feds off his back. Her husband, Richard Fairbanks was in charge at that time of the State Department's efforts to keep arms from Iran called Operation Staunch. He quit a year later and became the Washington lawyer and lobbyist for Iraq and worked with Iraq until (laughs) Iraq invaded Kuwait. Now it's interesting also to note that the largest failed SNL in the country that did not have a federal home loan bank board investigation, Sunrise was number two largest. The largest was Hill Financial in Red Hill, Pennsylvania that plays a big part in my book. And the number two borrower at Hill Financial was John Riddle's buddy, a Houston builder named Mike Atkinson, who at that time was transshipping arms to the Middle East. So you find a connecting thread here of arms to the Middle East and savings and loans. And, and Bush's office was directly involved in keeping this sunrise, uh, sunrise Savings open and was lending money to John
2: Riddle. Bruton isn't exaggerating when he talks about how close the Bush family were to the mafia either. Neil Bush, uh, he raised money for the countries himself, by the way, he was a board member of the Silverado Savings and Loan. One of his closest business partners was Wayne Reeder, who was also an associate of Dr. John Nichols, the CIA asset and financial advisor for the Cabazon Mission. Reader was very good friends with Herman Bibe who was the financial advisor and money launderer for the New Orleans Mafia, particularly Carlos Marcello, and other high-ranking members of the Chicago outfit as well. It's not possible that Poppy Bush wouldn't have foreseen the consequences of deregulation given how mobbed up his own son was. And just as the alliance with the Mujahideen was going to help cement a new enemy for America to rally against in the 21st century, the SNL fraud was going to set a, a precedent where high level insiders at financial institutions are essentially given carte blanche to commit theft and fraud on a massive scale. And then it falls on taxpayers to pick up the bill, you know. And the financial crisis of 2008 followed basically this template. And Bruton figures, in fact, that The key figures behind the SNL scam made off with around $500 billion in total. And the main reason the perpetrators were never investigated is because they were protected by people in Congress, you know, and the Reagan administration. People who themselves profited from the collapses of these various SNLs. So, continuity of government. Doomsday. What Bush and North and the rest of the enterprise were doing in setting up these various clandestine channels to support, you know, the Contras, the Mujahideen and other covert operations. Yeah, it effectively laid the groundwork for something close to a parallel system of government inside, you know, the White House, a true deep political network. By creating these secret lines of communication and information flows, They managed to cut out political opponents and evade scrutiny. And they even had their own computer network as well called Flashboard. And this facilitated rapid classified communication with each other all over the world. And they brought in people they felt they could trust at all levels of the US government bureaucracy. People they knew would keep their mouths shut. And they were recruited, you know, not just from the CIA, and the Reagan administration. There were also the cops, uh, the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, so on. You know, they recruited people from those organizations as well. And the major players coalesced as part of the Bush Task Force Senior Review Group to devise the operations. And they were carried out by the operations subgroup. And to evade detection, uh, this is kind of a bit like in the loop. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but to evade detection the names of various planning committees and secret teams continually changed their names. So one week a group might meet as the alien border control committee. Then the next week, the same group of guys would discuss the same plans, but this time they'd be called the national program office, something like that. And while these secret networks facilitated operations like Iran-Contra, they also worked on continuity of government planning. And at the heart of COG, was using some kind of civil emergency as a pretext to suspend the constitution, roll back civil liberties, implement martial law, and launch mass roundups of people deemed to be threats to national security. And the end goal, as envisioned by the key architects of the plans like Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and Poppy, it was to install some kind of ruling junta. Rex eighty-four or readiness exercise nineteen eighty-four uh, is probably the most well-known of these continuity of government doomsday plans. It was a drill that was developed by the feds in which the federal government in which they envisioned mass civil unrest in response to a hypothetical invasion of a country in Central America. Mm. But contingency planners also believed that, you know, racial unrest or unprecedented disruption from labor action could also necessitate a continuity of government response that would require the army and the FBI to work in coordination with FEMA to create detention facilities. Now, I know that if you've flirted around this uh, field of study for long enough by this point, you will be aware that FEMA death camps are a big, big boogeyman uh, on the right, particularly like under Democrat presidents like Barack Obama. And it's not so much now with Joe Biden, but definitely under Barack Obama. I remember hearing loads about FEMA death camps. Um, the thing is that a lot of that comes from this. You know, there's, there's a core of truth at the the base of what it is that they're saying. It's just that they take it in this psychedelic, bizarre, batshit, insane um, direction. But there is that core of truth there. They really do have continuity of government plans that requires the feds and FEMA to coordinate, uh, creating detention facilities for subversives and dissidents. Now, drawing up lists of subversives that's certainly nothing new. I mean, you'll remember the Hydra computer database that the CIA and the FBI collaborated on in the late 60s. We talked about that in the Season of the Witch series. That was as a response to the rise of the new left and, you know, black militarism. But we mentioned last episode that the US government had also outsourced this kind of counterintelligence work to private uh, companies. So Wackenhut alone... They'd independently collected around 2 million names of people that it deemed to be subversives by the early 70s. This rose to about 4 million by the end of the 1980s. Now, Wackenhut, of course, eventually became G4S. Um, God knows what their database of subversives looks like now. Operation Garden Plot was a Department of Defense plan that was created by the US Army, and it was controlled by Northern Command in response to the riots in Watts, Detroit, and Newark in the 60s. With a few tweaks here and there, it was actually activated in 1992 in response to the LA riots. What was new about the CRG plans of the Reagan administration was the sheer size of them. Um, under the rubric of counterterrorism anyone could be deemed a potential subversive. You know, they could be monitored in secret for years without ever being aware of it. And much of the underlying thinking ceased being strictly part of COG preparations and it started to inform day-to-day policy. Remember we said earlier, you know, business that creates business. Well, in response to the violence surrounding the crack epidemic, You know, an epidemic triggered by the CIA's own operations and assets, remember. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act was passed in 1986. It authorised the US military to work in conjunction with local law enforcement agencies and the FBI to fight what was being called, now, the War on Drugs. As Diane Reynolds writes, quote, If you live in federal housing or if you reside in large urban areas such as New York, Boston, or Los Angeles, anywhere crime and addiction have turned neighborhoods into combat zones, this act technically permits the military to fence off your streets, keep track of who comes from and goes to your home, stop and frisk you, your friends and family, and regularly inspect your home and belongings. By the mid-1980s, a 6,100 square foot command center had been installed on the sixth floor of the Justice Department and a database of domestic subversives and potential terrorists. Remember, in this atmosphere at the time and up to the present day, anybody the US government doesn't like can be considered a potential terrorist, you know. This database was being built up uh, with information supplied to it by, you know, all different state security uh, agencies across the US, this database would come to be known as MainCar, and Oliver North had remote access to it from his office in the White House. Significantly for us, do you want to guess which program he was using to manage the millions of names and organizations that had been deemed threats to national security? That's right, baby. According to intelligence insiders who spoke off the record to Wired magazine, the Hamilton's legal team, who were using sources inside the uh, Department of Justice, and congressional investigators, Oliver North was using Promise to track the millions of subversives whose names had been fed into Maine On November 18th, 1988, Reagan issued... Executive Order 12656. This officially transferred responsibility for developing continuity of government plans to the National Security Council. The NSC was packed with Bush cronies. What's most notable is that many of these CIG plans did actually, eventually, come into effect in different ways. But after the 9-11 attacks, a main car still a central part of these plans, nearly 20 years later. Tim Shorrock, here he's writing for Salon in 2008, he said this, quote, according to several former US government officials with extensive knowledge of intelligence operations, MainCorps, in its current incarnation, apparently contains a vast amount of personal data on Americans, including NSA intercepts of bank and credit card transactions and the results of surveillance efforts by the FBI, the CIA, and other agencies. One former intelligence official described MainCorps as an emergency internal security database system designed for use by the military in the event of a national catastrophe, a suspension of the constitution or the imposition of martial law. Its name, he says, is derived from the fact that it contains copies of the main core or essence of each item of intelligence information on Americans produced by the FBI and the other agencies of the US intelligence community. So the feds and the CIA and the NSA, Are feeding the hungry more of main car. But remember as well that loads of, you know, of like law enforcement agencies and other uh, government departments have their own intelligence groups as well. So by the time Bush was staggering towards the end of his single term as president, his role as this deep political operator who, champion policies and oversaw criminal conspiracies that had such a corrosive effect, you know, not just on the US, but the world. All of that had been mostly suppressed or wiped from the historical record. And somehow, his time as godfather of the deep state, for lack of a better term, that would pass mostly uncommented on, you know, and you rarely see him connected directly to any of this deeper, more off-the-grid stuff around Iran-Contra. And instead, he's remembered, at worst, as a knitted scarf, you know, a, a weedy nerd who didn't have what it took to play with the big boys. And it's impossible not to have read the fawning coverage that greeted his death without feeling sick to your stomach, if you know even a tenth of all this stuff. One of the more frequently repeated lines I remember in the days after he died it was how his calm methodical approach to politics was exactly what we needed after the the chaos of trump you know and there was no attempt at all made to join the dots to explore how you know possibly trump was an inevitable consequence of the last 30 years of policy and that was a period that was profoundly horrifyingly shaped by the influence of people like bush and his enterprise Uh, poppy wasn't a great statesman necessarily and he definitely isn't a much missed voice of reason for a lot of people bush is ultimately the president who said
0: i'll never apologize for the united states of america ever i don't care what the facts are i will lead her i will do my level best to stand up for freedom and democracy around the world by keeping the United States of America strong and by keeping our eyes wide open as we welcome change in the world, but keeping our eyes wide open.
2: After the US Navy shot down an Iranian passenger jet and killed 290 civilians, he's the guy who ordered the invasion of Panama to cover up his links to the Kirk trade. He's the guy whose business links to the Saudi ruling elite and support for Operation Cyclone led to the rise of Osama bin Laden. You do return to the logic of fever dreams in thinking about the 15 years or so when Poppy Bush was secretly the most powerful man in America, let's be real, and the enterprise was making moves that ultimately helped create the 21st century. And Bush got away with everything. And yet so much of what he got away with is very hard to connect directly to the man himself. It's hard, but it's not impossible. His power and the power of the network of networks that he represented manifested as bodies piled in ditches outside Nicaraguan villages or drive-bys in South Central LA, Money flowing through Swiss banks and into offshore accounts, the burning oil fields of Iraq, disintegrating ice caps, hick cops in Midwest towns driving tanks through the suburbs, midnight airlifts from the opium fields of Afghanistan, a kid doing 30 years for carrying a bag of coke, burning skyscrapers in downtown Manhattan, and 28 redacted pages. The enterprise wasn't just a handful. Of DC insiders running guns to the Contras, it facilitated the crimes of a ruling class completely untethered from any sense of morality. That class is still killing the world, and it feels like we have only fallen deeper into the fever dream since Iran Contra broke. But if you want to know what power looks like when it's Networks like the one headed by George Bush wielding it look to the sky and follow the birds circling the carrion. That about does it for this episode. So while Bush was still secretly running the US shadow government in the 1980s, the promise software had gone global. So in the next installment, Benghazi is going to be joining me again and he's going to help me trace the chain of custody and explore a little bit more of the octopus. We are closing in on the home stretch now, friends. Thanks for listening. Why not sub and show some love on Patreon if you haven't already or leave a rating and review on iTunes I'm told it helps boost the profile of the show as ever mark the exits check the sightlines and don't get captured